Today we're going to be continuing our uh, series in Exodus. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 21. It's the song of Moses, Miriam, and God's people. Last week we learned some things about the divine power of God in rescuing his people. Today we'll see the response of the people of God to his salvation. Now this awesome and unique thing is recorded as happening after the people of God are rescued from the hand of Pharaoh. They stop at the other side of the rescue and they sing praises to God. Now if you allow your mind to go there, you can really imagine the beauty of just what is happening. Millions of people, people believe millions, I believe millions, at least one, maybe two. Million people in one voice singing praise of the rescue, singing praise of the power, singing praise of the glory of God. It's a beautiful sight. You can, if you think hard enough, if you have a good enough imagination, you can almost... Picture yourself there. Today we're going to read from Exodus. And we're going to read this story. We're going to see this story of the song of Moses and how Moses and the people praise the Lord. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. I'm going to stop right here just for a second. We're not going to, we will not focus on the content as much as we will the, the song of praise today, but I do want to stop and focus on this. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be its fill of them, I will draw the sword, my hand shall destroy them. And the Bible says, and Moses says, that just like this, God destroyed them. Not, not, think about, don't don't do that because you'll probably blow something out of your nose, but think about, think about, that he said, with the breath of your nostrils. Now, of all the breaths that you can take, it is the most dainty of all breaths, right? It is the weakest of all breaths. It is. <laughs> that's not very powerful. I can inhale all I want, 
And without blowing something out, I can't get much breath out of my nostrils. But yet Pharaoh, in verse 9, Pharaoh has said, I will overtake, I will have my fill, I will get the spoils. And God says, no you won't. Just the breath of his nostrils. The weakest amount of force that humans can give is the weakest amount of force that God can give and it was more than sufficient. The Bible says in verse 10, you blew with your wind, nostril wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? I want to stop again because, again, I'm not going to get to the contents of this passage as much as I am the overall uh, form of it. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? And the Lord has done his job to answer that question we've seen over the Exodus. But what we find is, not only was Pharaoh's question dumb, it was the wrong question. It was the wrong question. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? But the question he should have been asking was, who is like the Lord? Friends, I want to tell you, it's very important to understand We don't need to question who is the Lord. We don't need to find who is the one God. We need to understand and we need to discover who is like our God. And God is going to prove over and over again that he is the Lord. But more importantly, he is going to prove over and over again that there is no one, no thing like him. The right question is not who is the Lord. The right question is who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love, uh, excuse me, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Who is like you, O Lord? For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked out on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Will you pray with me this morning? Good and holy God, who is like you, Lord, your greatness and your goodness, Lord, they are unmatchable. They are insurpassable. 
Lord, you have set yourself apart from anything that has ever been made. You have set yourself apart from anything that will, has, or currently exists. Who is like you, O Lord? God, to which, as we answer the question in our own minds, as we reflect upon how you've been good to us, we sing praises like Moses. We sing praises like the people of God. We sing praises like Miriam. Because you have proven over and over and over again that you are the Lord and there is none like you. God, we love you. We praise you. We give you this day. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Yesterday was, for me at least, it was the start of college football season. College football season doesn't start until Memphis starts playing. It doesn't matter how many of those minuscule other weird games they have. It doesn't start until Memphis starts playing. And I spent most of the day yesterday tailgating and watching a game with 40-something thousand other fans, waiting and then watching the Memphis Tigers open their football season. It was a great time. It was one that I have looked forward to for weeks. And I couldn't help in the middle of this game, as I was sitting this, in this stadium full of thousands upon thousands of people, specifically thinking about how Moses and the people of God must have felt on some small scale um, after God's great victory. Now, this illustration would have fallen apart had we lost yesterday, but we, but we didn't. So, um, And how their response to the greatness of the Lord was to sing. I was reminded of this uh, same response uh, that the Tigers and most other people um, now, there's one in Tennessee, they sing Rocky Top. That's more demonic than it is an illustration of God, so we won't go to that one. But the Tigers, every time they, every time they score, they, the fans and the band and everybody plays the, um, the Tiger Fight song. And then everybody in celebration, in praise of what the team has done, um, and I, I will confess that for some people it's idolatry. It's not for me, just borderline most of the, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But everybody gets together and they sing the Tigers fight song. Go Tigers, go. Go on to victory. Be a winner through and through. Fight Tigers, fight. Because we're going all the way. Fight, fight, fight for the blue and gray. And say, I'm not going to sing the whole thing, but I just wanted you to get an experience of how awesome it is to be a Memphis Tiger fan. But it was a response. The Tiger fight song being sung is a response to a celebration. It is a celebration in response to something great that has happened. The team has against not really all odds, because the team we played yesterday was kind of trash, but the team against some odds has made it down the field. And they did that ten times yesterday. So it was it was full of that singing and celebration. And so on some level I, I couldn't help but think of of Moses and Miriam, and the people of God, and and their celebration as to what the Lord has done. And it would have been much more of a massive celebration, as I've already mentioned. At least hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, singing the praise of God. God's fight song. God's victory song. See, because friends, it is historically proven that when people 
in t- people in times of praise sing and they celebrate. And the Lord's people, it was no different. The Lord had rescued his people from the strong hand of Pharaoh. The Lord had proven himself again. And the response of Moses and Miriam and the people of God was to sing praises to the Lord. Now, it may seem normal to you to come here on Sunday mornings and sing praises to the Lord. But imagine how odd it is to non-Christians or to people who aren't accustomed to attending church gatherings. But really, when we take the natural responses of Moses and the natural response of people in general, singing is, is not so odd. The singing that we do then is a weekly proclamation of, the, of praise to God for all that He has done. Singing is a weekly proclamation of pray, uh, uh, for God, excuse me, because of His goodness and His holy nature. It is a weekly proclamation for His saints and others to hear and recognize and celebrate the goodness of God. This singing in our context was not just for Moses or for Miriam or for or a, a, um, a select few, but it was for the collective to get together and vocalize the, the joy, the tremendous amount of excitement and exuberance that they had in their heart for what the Lord had done for them. Philip Ryken said this about our response to singing. He said, The whole church is called to offer the same kind of praise to God in the name of Jesus Christ. We have seen His salvation in our reading of the gospel. By faith, we stood with the women at the cross, watching Jesus suffer and die for our sins. By faith, we have looked over the shoulders of the apostles into the empty tomb where Jesus rose again. Jesus has saved us from sin and death. Now every man, woman, and child in the church is called to join the choir and take up the song, the song of the Savior. Now, I don't believe that it was Moses' exact intention to give us a prescription of what our worship should look like on Sunday mornings. Our worship through music should look like on Sunday mornings. I honestly believe that Moses was just so overcome with joy, that the people of God were so overcome with joy at the work that God has done, that he just echoed, his response was to echo verbalize what God had done. To, as an offering, give praise back to God by verbalizing what he had done in some sort of way. And friends, on some level, now Moses is not giving us an exact prescription for praise, but on some level and in a major way, our Sunday morning singings, our Sunday morning worship, and in our life worship is to be an echo to God. It's to be a verbalizing to God what He has done for us. And then it becomes praise, it becomes an offering, and it becomes acceptable to God. It is not to be a mundane repeating or or singing along of what Blake and the others are doing. It is to be a reflection of the praise that is on our heart. It is to be a reflection of the praise that is on our mind. And it is to be a reflection not of what God is just, not just of what God has done for us, but more specifically, the goodness of the God who did it. Yes. 
Who is like you, O Lord? Moses was so overcome by joy. Maybe a little relief, too, if you know, if you've read Exodus and you know Moses. You know how Moses has gone through his doubt. You know how Moses has gone through uh, ridicule from the people. Maybe it's a little relief, too, that the Lord has rescued him. I don't believe he's given us an exact prescription of what praise should look like. But I do believe that he has given us some important and objective insight about proper praise. And how every Christian should respond to the goodness and holiness of God. How every Christian should praise the Lord. Now just a brief disclaimer here. I'm not going to give you in great detail detail about every aspect of the song. I tried to do that as we were reading the text. And I'll do that sort of sporadically through our sermon today. And honestly, through the end To this point in Exodus and through the end of Exodus, we're going to continue talking about the same characteristics and the same traits of God. And so we're going to do something, uh, uh, not exactly talk about the content of the message. We're going to talk more about the order of the message. And I think that the Song of Moses gives us three, it teaches us three truths about right worship and right praise. And this is what I want to focus on today. And if you have more conversation, you can discuss it during missional communities or you can discuss it, you know, one-on-one, however you want to do it. But, or you can even ask me questions about it. But there are three truths about right worship and right praise that we see from Moses' song today. And the first is this. Right worship and praise is God-centered and not man-centered. Right worship and praise is God-centered and not man-centered. Centered. One aspect of this song that must not be overlooked, friends, is that it is overtly God-centered. The entire song is about the works of God and the results of what God has done. Look at some of the words Moses said that are sort of peppered all throughout this psalm. God is triumphant. He is my strength. He is my song. He is my salvation. He is a man of war. The Lord is glorious in power. He's great and he's majestic. He is incomparable. He is holy. He is awesome in deeds. He's wondrous. He's steadfast in love. He's eternally reigning. He is the controller of creation. But not only that, this song uh, speaks, this song of praise speaks of the Lord being a man of war and, and the trembling and the weakness of the enemies of God. And there's an underlying Uh, an underlying sort of thought of the weakness of God's people too. The inability of God's people. And so we make the songs that we sing, and Moses made this song particularly, more God-centered when we focus on the characteristics and the goodness of God. We focus on the inability of we, His people, and we focus on the great depravity of the world around us. Songs of praise, friends, although they are generally positive, they are also right if they talk about the just characteristics of God. In just one song, a glorious truth is revealed about right worship and right praise, and that is that it is all about God. Now, I understand that singing is only one aspect of worship, but if you would think about it, it is one of the most major aspects of worship. That is why, rightfully so, most of the time when we say, let's worship together, what are we talking about? 
We're talking about singing. Now we know through sermons that Stephen has done and other sermons that we've had that worship is much more than just singing. But it, singing is a major part of worship because it is how the overflow almost naturally occurs, almost naturally comes out. It seems almost needless to say that worship through music should be Christ-centered. However, I say this because we were either a victim of some of these songs, or we willfully love them at times, or some of you might even belong to churches, or you know people that belong to churches that are still willfully singing songs that aren't so Christ-centered. We have at times, and many churches sings, sing songs now that are redundant, that are oversimplified, that are theologically unsound, and they're not Christ-centered. Now, I want to give you an example. Maybe you've experienced this in your past. Here are a few. I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. Redundant, redundant, redundant. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with that idea, but sometimes, hey, tell me, if you were in a worship service one time and you thought, we are literally going to sing of his love forever, aren't we? Because they're going to sing this over and over and over again. It's not that it's necessarily inherently bad, but it's the redundancy and, and sort of the, um, it, 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 it takes, it doesn't, it's not really theologically meaty. And those songs are good sometimes, but I don't know that they are songs of praise in their truest sense. Or what about, come, now is the time to worship? I mean, Blake does that before we start. You don't need a whole song about it. You know, just, just get in here, it's the time to worship. Um, come, now is the time to worship is one of those. Or maybe, friend of God. I am a friend of God. If you sing it a thousand times, it automatically becomes true. Or Basically, most things written by Chris Tomlin. Um, in the 80s or 90s, in the 80s or 90s, listen, men, and that Chris Tomlin was only sort of a slight, but, you know, there's a, lot, there's a little bit of truth to every bit of sarcasm. In the 80s and 90s, men and women did so much to bring God down to the level of mankind. Praise worship does so much to bring, praise choruses or whatever, from the 80s and 90s and even now, it does so much to bring God down to mankind when actually right worship and praise should be bringing our minds into where God is, bringing our minds to where He is, not bringing God down to mankind, but bringing our mind to where He is, where He lives and where He reigns, where there is none like Him. The point of worship and praise is to focus on God in His right place. It isn't just praise songs, though. What about hymns like, A Savior is Waiting? The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Oh, won't you let Him come in? So I, I just imagine Jesus. You know what I mean? He's got, his, he's got His hand under His chin, just waiting. No, theologically unsound. Even hymns can be theologically unsound. The Savior is not waiting. He's not highly anticipating your return to the kingdom. He is relentlessly pursuing his people. A hymn, a hymn even, can be on the wrong track. It sounds good when you're trying to get people to walk down an aisle. But is it theologically sound? 
Does it bring God down to people? Or does it elevate the minds of the people to worship and praise a mighty and majestic God? Most worship and praise music these days, most of that is just man-centered. It's riddled with bad theology. And in a way, it's even mystic. It's just strange. It is not at all what Moses is, uh, what we see from Moses. It's not what we find in the Psalms. Honestly, most hymns, over the, even modern hymns, and over the last 200 years, it's not what we find in those. Why should worship be Christ centered? Well, obviously, because we worship and we praise simply for what he has done. And if anyone else becomes the object, then we are misrepresenting how we are saved. But also, when we worship in a Christ-centered manner, it allows us to believe again. It kindles a fire that self-dependency lessens. It reignites a sense of wonder and gratitude that we may tend to lose over time. We reprioritize God, His truths, and plans and purposes in our lives. Right worship sweeps away apathy. Right worship is a conscious act of the will to serve and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't want you to go around being hypercritical of every song you hear now and every song you sing. But I do want you to be discerning enough to know if it's worship that is authentic, that is Christ-honoring, that is Christ-centered, that raises the minds of man to God and not tries to bring down God to the level of man. Whether it's music or work or play or anything else, our worship must be Christ-centered. Right worship is Christ-centered. The second thing is this. Right worship and praise is trusting with confident assurance. Truly our worship must be grounded and founded in our faith in God. Not just a simple faith that saves because that is just the catalyst for a stronger and richer faith. But a faith that trusts with assurance that God will do, can do, and is doing anything and everything that he says and purposes to do. A.W. Tozer said this about our trust in God. With the goodness of God to desire our with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Augustine said, trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence. What we have when we sing praises in the right way, when we worship in the right way, is a confident assurance in God and who He is and what He said He's going to do. In this song of worship and song of praise, we see Moses displays this for us. Moses talks about the past as if God defeated all of His enemies and eliminated any possibility of their return to slavery. 
which Moses is a man. He's a mortal man. He doesn't know with absolute certainty that they'll never be under the slavery of the Egyptians. He doesn't know with absolute certainty that God has fully won victory. But there is a certainty in his mind, not because of his, his mortal way of thinking, not because of his finite way of thinking, but because of his trust and assurance in an all-powerful and almighty God. So we sing that same way when we worship and praise together. We sing with a certainty. But we know this more so, um, not just the way that Moses sang, but we know this because of verse 13. We know that Moses had this certainty and this assurance in God from what we see in verse 13. Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So what we have here is we have this phrase, this sentence, this part of this song from Moses that is in the past tense. You have led your steadfast love, the people, excuse me, you've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now we look at that and we're like, yeah, God did it. But there's a problem. Moses is actually in this verse speaking of a future act. He's speaking of a future act. But it is in the past tense. Where, it, where for them is God's holy abode? The promised land. The promised land is God's holy abode where he roots them. Later on in the verse it says he roots them. He plants them on the mountain. That's God's holy abode. So how then is Moses speaking in the past tense about a work that God is going to do in the future? We call this the prophetic perfect. I didn't make it up, obviously. I'm not that smart. But it's the prophetic perfect. And the prophetic perfect is when the author speaks of something that God will do, and he speaks of it in the past tense, because it shows you how much trust and assurance that he has that God is going to get the job done. The prophetic perfect. Moses speaks of the work of God and getting the people of God to the promised land in the past tense because he knows with 100% assurance that God is God. He knows that God will do what he purposes to do as if that even though it hasn't happened, that it's already done. Moses saying, God, you will take us to your abode and I'm so sure of it that I'm just going to talk of it like it's already happened. It is the ultimate Babe Ruth deal, right? You know what Babe Ruth is known for, right? Babe Ruth is known for calling a shot and then hitting a home run. It is like Steph Curry shooting a three and walking away knowing that it's going in. It's like when I was younger, when I was playing basketball, there was always this dude on the court that would say and one for you because he knew you were going to make it. And you know, he knew you got fouled. And saying and one was, hey, look, it's going in, and I'm getting fouled. It happens even before the ball goes in. It's the ultimate power move by God to do or, or to have his people know with so much assurance that he's going to do what he says he's going to do that they think of it as already done. Friends, you need to know this. Our worship becomes right our worship is right and our praise is right when we sing of the things up here as if with the assurance and with the understanding that God has or will do them. When we trust so much 
in the power of God that we believe that even when we can't see a solution, even when we can't find the answer, even when the, the future looks dim, that God is able to be trusted, He is able to be followed, and therefore we can just understand that His work and His victory will be won. It's why we can look at our present struggles and we can sing about God and not be a hypocrite. Because we trust in the work that he is doing, that he is going to do, and that he has done. It's why we can look at our future and sing songs about being in glory and about reigning with God God and not be ashamed. Because we have confidence in the work of the gospel and what God says about all of our futures of those who belong in him. Friends, we're able to sing in confidence and assurance, not because the songs we sing always relate to our life situation, not because they are pertinent and necessarily timely to what we're going through, but because God is God regardless of the circumstances and issues in our lives. And God cannot deny himself, even if it feels like, at least temporarily, that he has denied us. Friends, He is God even when we can't muster up the strength to put on a happy face. He is God when we can't muster up the strength, as Stephen says, fake it till you make it. I mean, he doesn't say that as a natural thing. He said that in his sermon. He is God so we can sing in confidence even though our world may be spinning. He is God and He has planted us firmly, like our verse says. He has planted us firmly on our holy hill. So right worship and right praise is is not only singing in a Christ-centered way, a God-centered way, but it is singing with confidence and assurance that God is who He says He is, and He's going to do what He says He's going to do. And so we just sing like it's already done. Right worship and praise is God-centered. It is worshiping in confident assurance and Right worship and praise is for all Christians and not unbelievers. I might lose some of you, but I'm going to bring it full circle, okay? Right worship and praise is for all Christians and not unbelievers. Worship and praise are responses. What are they responses to? They are responses to salvation. It is a response to redemption, These are responses to the mighty hand of God saving sinners from the depths of their sins. Saving sinners from their greatest enemies. Saving sinners from the depth of their sin and depravity. Worship and and, uh, and praise is a response to being saved from our sin. Therefore, our songs are not, listen, our songs are not meant to woo the lost, but are reflections of the saved. Friends, we have done so much to dumb down, to change the lingo, to retrofit praise, to be more palatable to non-Christians that it is not praise anymore. How does a lost person praise with a fount of blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins? They can't because they have never experienced the power of the fount of blood that washes away the transgressions of man. So we take songs and we make them generically about love that God has. What does a lost person know about being held fast by the hand of God when the truth is they aren't even held at all? 
What about grace that is greater than all of our sins when there hasn't been a desire to yet mortify the flesh? Friends, the goal is not to make the church service more comfortable for the lost. Our service our services should be so focused on Christ and the response of his children that it is actually uncomfortable for non-Christians to be in our service. Not because we don't make them feel like they are loved or accepted. Not because we seem unloving in general. It is to leave them with questions. Questions that can lead to faith. If you only sing songs about love and peace and hope in generic terms, then literally anyone can accept that. Anyone can come into a service and say, yep, love, I know that. Yep, peace, I want that. Yep, hope, who doesn't need that? And so people leave every day because we've dumbed services down so much. People leave every day with no intent, uh, uh, content, with no plan of changing because honestly they don't know that they need to. But if we speak of those things in terms that someone who has not been saved by the grace of God must question, in terms that someone who has not experienced the work and power of Jesus Christ must question, someone who has not experienced the Holy Spirit must question, what we're doing is we're drawing a line in the sand. Friends, I know that it may seem harsh, but you have to understand that the only, person, the only way a lost person comes to Christ is if they know that there is a need. And the only way that, we, that they know that there is a need is if we stop hiding it in the church. And we stop hiding it as the people of God. And we start proclaiming, listen, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, we have done so much to dumb down our worship and praise. We have done so much to dumb down the gospel that essentially anyone can go in any church in DeSoto County and not feel, a, not feel a tinge of difficulty in singing the songs, not feel a tinge of difficulty in praising on that day. We must speak of these things of God in terms that he must, that other people, it causes other people discomfort. And I think one of those things would be talking about, singing about Christ as the center, singing about our desperation, our neediness, and singing honestly about the punishment of the enemies of God. When you do that, you're going to give people something to think about. Do you think what was left of the Egyptian army could have sung with Moses and the people of God the same song? You are our Redeemer. You have destroyed our enemies with your right hand. You have swallowed them up. No, because their enemies, the Egyptian army, what was left of it, their enemies were sitting safe on the other side of the shore. They could have, though, if Moses had said, Oh God, you are love. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Make us love you more. Make us want you more. Make us see you more. Fill us with your presence. The Egyptian army probably could have accepted that because it didn't just talk about their doom. It didn't just talk about what God had done 
to them. It didn't separate them. It doesn't separate them from the Israelites. Heck, if most of the people, if the Israelites, if the people of God sang and praised like the people of God or the proclaimed, professed people of God do now, they would have been having parties with the Philistines instead of war. They would have joined right in with the people of Canaan instead of taking them over. Worship songs, friends, were not written to woo the lost, but as a response to God from the saved. We have done so much, and I think I'm not, I'm not being critical, but I do want you to understand. I'm not being critical of vintage necessarily because I think we're doing a wonderful job of, of doing everything we can to not be this way. But I am, I do want you to know, in case you didn't, why we do the things that we do. Because the church has done so much to make church gatherings acceptable and palatable for non-Christians. When that's not, that's not the case. Listen, the reason those songs kind of stink overall, those ones that I'm talking about, you've got a few in your head that I didn't mention, is because they are overtly evangelistic. Our praise and worship should not be evangelistic. There should be ideas that want to draw people uh, that want to draw their spirit to know more and to, and to understand God more, but they should not be evangelistic. Because praise and worship historically, the hymns that were sung in the psalm, and the psalms that were sung, they were sung because the people of God were responding to the work of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God. And the Bible even says this. Listen, you do church the way you do it, this is not what it says. This is the Bryce American Standard Version. You do church the way you're going to do it. And if somebody who's not saved comes in, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, He touches them and saves them, that's awesome. But friends, we don't organize, we don't facilitate our church to be more palatable to non-Christians. The church gathering is the only time, one of the only times all week, where the people of God do something to focus strictly on the people of God. The reason our songs are more evangelistic, the reason that sermons seem more evangelistic in the traditional church is this. It's because the people of God have lost their responsibility, have stopped their responsibility of proclaiming Christ throughout the week. And so the pastor and the, and the church has made the church service their evangelistic effort throughout the week, for the week. Friends, listen, if we are to establish order and right praise and right worship again, the people, it is necessary for the people of God to be evangelists throughout the week and to be Christians on Sunday. You understand what I mean by that? You understand what I'm designated by that? We share the gospel throughout the week, and on Sunday we worship together as the body of Christ. And we echo with each other the, what God has done and how good he is and how good he's going to be. We think about our desperation. We think about our neediness. We think about how he's our only hope. How we had no hope. We were strangers and aliens and far off. And those songs, the praise, the worship, it, it was alien, it was strange, and it was far off. But God, who is rich in love, he forgave us of our sins. He brought us fully into the family of God. He redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ and he keeps us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, 
Our natural response on Sunday should not be to sit. It should not be to walk out. It should not be to find something else to do. It should not be to play on our phone. But it should be to respond to God in worship and praise for what he has done. Pray with me today. Good and holy God. You are more than worthy of anything that we could give you. You are more than worthy of the praise from our lips, the offering of our lives. And we are more than incapable of giving those things. But Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus, would you allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth? Would you allow us to worship you in a right manner? Would you allow our praise and worship to be centered upon the work of Jesus Christ? Would you allow our praise and worship to be with confident assurance? And would you allow it to be the reflection of the saints of God? God, we love you. We praise you. We give you these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.